Hey besties, welcome or welcome back to A Growing Black Woman by me, Tosh. So, fun fact, I'm actually re-recording this podcast episode. So, as y'all know by the title, this is part two to my favorite books and authors at 20. And I recorded this podcast, um, I think like a week and a half ago, because my goal is to have my podcast up each and every Monday. And I was doing so great in trying to execute that goal but come Sunday night the Monday before I plan to upload this podcast it wasn't on my garage band I honestly wasn't that mad about it because when I recorded this podcast for whatever reason something just felt off I think it was because I was feeling very rushed um it was on that same day that I was going to go to the grocery store with my sister and my mom and I just felt as though they were waiting for me and I just felt the pressure to like quickly record the podcast. I was also like physically uncomfortable. Um, like it's very hard to use this microphone because one, the I always forget what it's called, but the piece that you use to block out external noise, like mine is kind of broken and that I have to hold both it and the microphone if that makes any sense and then my microphone itself is like pretty small I don't think I can extend out the stand and so I'm like holding it the entire time and also like when I feel the slightest bit of stress I just get a ton of lower back pain and so I just carry a lot of tension in my body and so I think that also like negatively contributed to my final product and I just I didn't feel like I was completely concentrated on the podcast and I'm going to be honest I don't feel completely concentrated today either but we're going to try we're going to push through and also it doesn't have to be perfect I am a huge perfectionist and whenever I feel as though something is off I kind of have this all or nothing mentality and I'll just rush through it and I'll hate it but I'll still post it but we're not going to do that we're going to try our very best and we are going to be kind and gentle to ourselves because that's all one really can do So with that being said, um, some life updates. So today is, I'm recording this podcast on Sunday, January 16th. I actually finished my last day, my first semester of my junior year on Friday the 14th. That was the last day of classes. I am currently in reading period, uh, prepping for finals. So yesterday was my first day kind of doing that prep. I didn't do too much studying yesterday, but I did create a study guide with my friend Jasmine for our physics class and I also created a study guide for math and even started some practice problems and reviewing worksheets so that's really exciting so I have my math final on this upcoming Friday the 21st at 2 o'clock my physics final the following day on Saturday at 2 o'clock then I have a paper for my debates in African-American education class due on the 24th so so a Monday at 11 a.m. And my current plan is to dedicate the next few days to math and physics exclusively. And then over the weekend, I'm going to write my five page paper for Africana studies, which, you know, isn't the most ideal thing to do. I'm not the best at writing papers within two days. I like for them to be, you know, I'm a perfectionist once again, but I had to turn in an outline for that paper last week. And so I think I made a pretty good outline. And so that should help. A ton when it comes to writing the paper of course I just have to expand on a lot of my ideas but I'm not too concerned about that at all I'm writing about something that I care about I mean the class of debates in African-American education so <laughs> I care about that topic in within itself um, so that's great I'm so so happy to have finally completed well I'm not completely done but I'm done learning new material for this semester um, and in physics and math specifically so so fucking happy as y'all know um so that's great um let's see other life updates like how am I feeling at this exact moment so I'm feeling okay I definitely went to sleep kind of late I think at like 12 30 in the morning and I was also on my phone for a really long time before falling asleep which is you know a habit that I would love to break but I have not made any specific goals towards breaking that habit so I can't complain too much Um, but yeah, I feel like I just woke up physically tired because my alarm goes off at 8 a.m. every day. I just like to start my day around the same time. It's just better for me mentally and physically, and I'm also just used to it. And I'd more than likely will wake up naturally around this time anyway. But if I wake up without my alarm clock, like in my mind, my day already has no structure. And so I'll like lie in bed. And sometimes if I lie in bed, even after waking up, I'll like get a migraine. 
and I don't know if that's just me and my thoughts immediately bombarding me early in the morning I don't really know but all I know is that once my eyes open I essentially need to start my morning routine and start mentally preparing myself to get out of bed um and I just kind of woke up anxious because one my ideally I would have liked to record recorded this podcast on Friday it's now Sunday I was gonna do it yesterday but then a few things threw me off and I was behind schedule and I was tired and I wasn't feeling too well so I decided to do laundry last night instead um, as opposed to recording the podcast because ideally I would like to record the podcast when I'm feeling pretty good but if I plan to have a podcast up every week and I and I plan to record those podcasts between Friday and Sunday, there's no guarantee that I'm going to be feeling my absolute best. And I think, if anything, it's more important for me to acknowledge that I'm not feeling my best, to be transparent with y'all on here, um, because health and wellness is important to me and realizing that we have really great days and we also have really bad days and everything in between. Um, but it doesn't mean that you still can't do things and produce things. Um, so yeah, just acknowledging that I don't have to feel my absolute best to record a podcast is, you know, something that is obviously new to me, but I am definitely okay with it. And I can only imagine that as I record these podcasts, regardless of the mood that I'm in, I think my mood can only get better. I don't think it could get worse. So if anything, I can look at recording my podcast as a way to keep me more grounded, um, and to help me be mentally well. Um, last week was definitely a harder week. So I've, so I do have generalized anxiety, but lately I've realized that I, that I'm pretty sure I have a very specific anxiety disorder, but I wasn't really sure what it was. I wasn't sure if it was like OCD tendencies. Um, all I knew was that I would have a bunch of intrusive thoughts um, that were very overwhelming, very difficult to get out of my head. Um, And I have a tendency to kind of invalidate how I feel because as mental health is talked about more and more, I'm realizing that most of us are dealing with at least one want one mental health challenge at a time if not more sometimes more than what we what we ever realize and so for me it's like maybe this isn't maybe I am reading a bit too much into this and then I'll go and do a shit ton of research about a certain uh, mental health challenge and a part of me is like maybe this is confirmation bias maybe I think I have x disorder and so I go out and seek what those symptoms look like and I read stories about it and I and I'm just like oh yep this is me to a t so I have this thing you know and you know to a certain extent it is very much unhealthy because I am not a professional I am not trained in diagnosing um mental health disorders and illnesses or whatever you'd like to label them as But at the same time, it's really important, especially as a black person and as a black woman, to do my own research and to have a better sense of what it is that I'm going through and to be able to attach the terminology to that because I may feel one way. And if I describe it in that way, um, a healthcare professional may kind of miss the whole point. You know what I mean? And it could be implicit biases on their end or they could very much mean good but misdiagnoses happen all the time to everyone and I think that's a huge fear of mine is like being misdiagnosed with something and not feeling 100% sure about a certain diagnosis and so I like to go into appointments with my um uh with my like mental health uh health care providers because I see a counselor and I have a therapist um so I like to go in with my research being done with my thoughts thought out I suppose but I realized that with this new sort of anxiety I've been experiencing, and I think I've been experiencing it for a while, it's been hard for me to put into words. Like a part of me just feels crazy to even talk about it. I talked with my counselor about it. I kind of explained to him what I had been feeling and he thinks that I have social anxiety, which was very surprising for me to hear. But after talking more with him and doing my own research and reflecting a bit more, I could certainly see that being a thing because 
I essentially explained to him how a lot of my anxieties um, result in social situations. Um, a lot of what I've been experiencing is this sort of fear of being judged negatively by others. Um, trying to decide how someone is going to perceive me before I even reach out to them or before they even think to perceive me in a certain way um and I really tend to isolate myself as a result of having anxieties and social situations and on the outside I always seem so put together and I like to think that I am a relatively confident person and to a certain extent I do appear to be more confident than what I really am for whatever reason you know it's not a bad thing I do think that sometimes you got to fake it until you make it but I think sometimes it's hard for me to distinguish between faking it and being authentic and so it's like maybe I've been faking so many things maybe I've been faking my confidence and my ability to socialize with people for so long to the point where I didn't even realize I have extreme anxiety around people or in certain social situations which is so interesting um and I was doing more research and apparently like one could be the loudest person in the room the most outgoing person the most talkative person and they could have social anxiety because what tends to happen is that one chooses to overcompensate for the anxiety by being the outgoing outspoken person because in their minds they're like oh if I don't talk if I'm not um outgoing they're going to negatively judge me they're going to think that I'm rude um they're not going to want to talk to me just all sorts of things and I just think it's so amazing how I could and one could have this perception of what a certain mental health um, disorder and illness may look like and you place labels on it and you stereotype people with um, various mental health challenges but you fail to acknowledge how these disorders first and foremost exist on a spectrum and there's also so much that we are still learning about various disorders and you know one thing that is really fascinating to me about mental health and thinking about behavioral and developmental challenges as y'all know is something that I am very much interested in is how these things sort of I don't want to I don't want to like misspeak because I do believe in science and while science can be very racist um I do believe in the numbers to a certain extent and I do believe in conducting research studies and statistical significance even though those sort of things do not paint a complete picture of the relationship between various factors although it is extremely helpful but I'm saying all that to say is that I I do believe that mental health challenges and illnesses appear or could appear differently in people of color and black people and black women and um a bunch of marginalized or in a bunch of folks with these various targeted identities and layered identities and um, with the intersection of identities. And it's it's interesting to think about because, you know, I saw this TikTok and I am definitely rambling at this point, but that's okay. I saw this TikTok um, a while ago that talked about how oftentimes black folks don't realize that we have a certain mental health challenge or challenges because we've learned to mask and we've learned to cope in certain ways that are directly tied into our blackness directly tied into our culture and our race and the ways that we're socialized to show up in these black spaces and these um uh cultural spaces it's very very terrifying for me to think about and I am one to be in my head a lot and I do tend to obsess over things but I guess the part that's missing obviously with OCD is the compulsion side of things and so you know my counselor I explained to him all sorts of things as best as I could and I think we're just going to really uh try and track a lot of my symptoms and so on my end I'm trying to be more conscientious of my symptoms and not be so judgmental of them um yeah, it's just scary. Mental health is, is it's definitely scary. And I do think that I am trying to be more honest about how I feel, despite how others may perceive me, because I do feel like to a certain extent, I put on this, 
I put on this facade that I am okay. Like, yes, I have expressed the ways that I'm not okay, but sometimes I don't think people understand the extent to which I am struggling. And I think I may have said this before, but it's just so unfair that because you're high functioning, people invalidate you or because maybe you are thriving in one area of life that they wish they were thriving in, that you are automatically like doing better than them or your challenges aren't as validated as theirs. But at the end of the day, my challenges are very real and they're very hard for me and they're very unique to me. And I just have to do a better job at validating myself even when I feel like those around me aren't validating me but at the same time I am a very extreme person to say the least and I love it about me but it is also one of my flaws and sometimes I just need someone to tell me that Tosh you're okay I acknowledge that you are going through all sorts of things in your head that you are spiraling that you are having breakdowns but breathe because you are okay and just being reminded of my coping mechanisms and all sorts of things. I've just, overall, I've just been spiraling a lot lately and freaking out about things. I'm still trying to make sense of it. But that was a huge update that I wanted to kind of share. But I did decide that I am going to start taking SSRIs um, for my anxiety because my counselor was saying, like, regardless of whether or not it's social anxiety or OCD or some other type of anxiety, these medications are used to treat anxiety very generally um so i'm very excited to start those i'm actually going to start once finals are over just in case i experience any side effects that could potentially impact my ability to study and function over the next few days and so i'll definitely keep you guys posted on that but um yeah i think it's important that i really take this step because i feel as though i have some really great coping mechanisms and i'm proud of the progress i made in my anxiety but I do think that I'd want to see what it would be like to do a combination of medication as well as um, therapy and still implementing my coping mechanisms. So yeah, we're going to go from there. So that's a huge update. And then let me think about any other updates I'd like to share with y'all. Oh, oh my God. I applied to two out of the four of my summer internships last week so 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 happy i am so proud of myself uh super super exciting i feel i feel good about these internships i really do like a part of me has my doubts but at the same time i just know that i am the perfect candidate for each and every one of these internships i have clearly expressed my interest and my passion and my my drive to pursue public health and i've extensively talked about my work experience my academic experience at Oberlin I talked about my personal experiences with my family and so I think I, I really painted with the help of um, uh, a career advisor at my college I, I painted a very great picture of myself a very authentic and true and real picture of myself and so for that I am grateful for that I really couldn't have asked for anything more and yeah it's, it's out of my hands I'm so excited I also got into junior practicum at my college and so I regardless will have an internship lined up for this upcoming summer so that's definitely some sweat off of my back I suppose um and then y'all so like I said that today is the 16th and I have read four books this year wait was it four Yes, four books this year, and I, and I am on my fifth. So I finished The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. I also read Daisy Jones in The Six. I read The Vanishing Half, and I read Malibu Rising. Daisy Jones in The Six and The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo are, without a doubt, two of my most favorite books now. I oftentimes find myself thinking about those books and thinking about some of the lessons learned, and those books, they've just really made me more aware of the person that I am becoming and thinking about the person I could potentially become and how some things are just really out of your control. The experiences that you're going to have, the people that you fall in love with, the friends that you'll make along the way, um, the money, the fame, the successes, how you perceive those successes, how others perceive those successes. It just, those books really had me thinking. Um, 
I'm not gonna lie, I do think that Daisy Jones and the Six kinda sent me spiraling just a, just a little bit. I don't know. It's just scary to think about, like as great as it is to think about the great person that you pe- you could become in all your great potential, it's equally as terrifying to think about the person that you you could become that you won't necessarily want to become, but you kind of become that person um, as a result of your circumstances, if that makes sense. Um, and I don't know, those books are just so great. The Vanishing Half was also a really good book. And let me see, like that book, it, it, it had, it was definitely about, or it had romantic encounters and scenes within that book. And it was also about sisterhood. And I think the book very generally was just about relationships. And it was so interesting because the uh, main characters, they grew up in a town in Louisiana where basically only light-skinned black folks folks live there and they were not very welcoming to outsiders but um there were a pair of twin sisters and they went missing um one day when they were teenagers and so the book basically takes place over decades um and I don't want to talk too much about the book but it was definitely a good read um so happy to have read it I finally read it and then Malibu Rising was okay I mean the book is definitely I think it's overhyped um I, I shed a tear for what for whatever that's worth worth but other than that um it wouldn't be like high up on my list of favorites at all but it was still good and I'm currently reading um All Black Girls Must Die Exhausted by Janelle Allen let me let me check to dub let me check to make sure I'm not butchering her name Jane Allen and I'm uh, about 70 pages in and it's also a pretty good read so far I think I'm gonna learn a lot from it and just the title in it within itself is very crazy to think about because you know to a certain extent it is true and as it is unfair it's the truth and that kind of takes me into this podcast actually so um let's start the next person I want to talk about is Dr. Bell Hooks, and many of you may know her, some of you may not know her. If you don't know her, then I highly recommend that you begin to know her because Dr. Hell Bo- Dr. Bell Hooks, a trailblazer without a doubt. So I first discovered um, Dr. Hooks during my, when was this? I think it was during the very first round of quarantine, so spring 2020. Yep, spring 2020. And a little bit about Dr. Hook. So she's a black woman. She was a professor, a black feminist, um, who contributed a lot to the black feminism movement and definitely made me feel seen as a black woman. She recently transitioned. So she passed away back in December. Um, I think she had an ongoing illness. But yeah, the first book that I read by Dr. Hooks was Ain't I a Woman? And the book, it was, it's kind of a difficult book to explain just because it was broken up into many sections. But I think the main takeaways that I got from that book was the black feminist movement relative to the feminist movement that, you know, I learned about in high school. Um, But Hooks talked about it in a way where she emphasized and discussed how the feminist movement was actually a movement created for and by white women and their interests were at the forefront um, of the feminist movement and how oftentimes black women found themselves in these quote-unquote feminist spaces but their blackness wasn't acknowledged and oftentimes when they were in these spaces white women would respond in a way where it's like we got to focus on one issue at a time and we have, we should focus on what we both share our womanhood but they failed to acknowledge that you cannot disregard the blackness of black women you can't disregard the womanhood of black women the two go hand in hand the two overlap and they certainly inform a lot of our decisions and so it was my first time 
reading about the feminist movement from that perspective and understanding the black feminist movement I would say there was this term that I became aware of known as um womanism or the womanist and so that's when I realized that there was a movement kind of created for black women to um further like the black feminist movement but it was my first time actually reading about it reading about it from Dr. Hook's perspective was very beautiful because she has a really great way with words and she's like very captivating um, and she just has this way of making you feel seen, especially if you are a black woman or femme and if you identify with um, some of these identities that she discusses in her book. Um, she also, the book actually started with um, considering black women um, during the beginning of enslavement back when um, my ancestors were brought to this country were stolen from their homeland and forced into this country and forced into physical and emotional labor and into enslavement and um she talked about the ways that um again like black women were just stripped of our womanhood and so for example thinking about how Black women were oftentimes forced to do a lot of the physical labor that their black male counterparts were doing. And a lot of these um, labor activities would be considered masculine activities. Uh, but despite this, we we didn't frequently see our black male counterparts being um, forced to engage in things in, in physical labor um, that would be considered feminine. And so... I just really appreciated how this book <laughs> acknowledged the ways that, you know, black women very generally um, are perceived by white women, perceived by white men, perceived by black men, just perceived by everyone um, in some of the in some of these negative ways. But I always appreciate reading about how, um, despite all of the odds that are against us as black women. Um, the ways that we still thrive and grow through it all no one should ever have to thrive and grow through something like that but it's such a unique experience and I'm always in awe of myself of my fellow um, black sisters and uh, black women in films that I'm around um, and it was also nice to read about um, being in community with other black women and being in those spaces where a lot of our interests are aligned and a lot of the change that we want to see is something that uh, we all relate to a lot. So definitely a, a fave of mine. Okay, so another fave of mine by Bell Hooks that I am currently reading and I'm not fully through yet just because it is a very heavy read for me. And I also got back into reading fiction books too, and this is nonfiction obviously, but it's called Sisters of the Yam, Black Women and Self-Recovery. And I talked a bit about this book in my most previous podcast, so during my New Year Reflection. And it is essentially a black woman self-help book and it's so good so far. So first and foremost, I am actually a part of a group on campus called Sisters of the Yam or SOY. And as one may imagine, it is a, an organization for black women and femmes and just sisterhood in general. And when I went to the initial meeting, the general interest meeting this past fall I was so happy to be in a space with other black women and films to feel like I was in a space um that made me feel seen and a space where I felt as though I could contribute a ton and I could support everyone and everyone could support me and we can just support each other in so many different ways and we talked a lot about some ideas that we had for the organization and going forward for the school year and it was just such a great time and I was just so happy to be a part of it and I still am happy to be a part of it and I think we were hoping to do a spring break trip this semester but or this upcoming semester but we'll see what happens um in terms of COVID because she is obviously in the driver's seat um but yeah some key takeaways from Sisters of the Yam so far that have impacted me so much and has informed who I am as a black woman was thinking about the ways that black women parent their black daughters specifically 
and it's something that bell hooks discussed in sister to the yam and a lot of the ways that black women parent their black daughters is um oftentimes when we think about like black parents in general just to kind of generalize things and not make assumptions about individual parents of course there's a tendency to try and toughen up our children before the world has to before more specifically white america has to and for whatever reason oftentimes our black girls get the burnt of this sort of um teaching and lesson and it's very detrimental to our mental health it's very detrimental to the ways that we will eventually navigate these very white spaces as we become young adults as we go off to college as we enter the workforce um, and as we just live our lives whatever that may look like for each of us and how oftentimes as bell hooks put it you know our sometimes our mothers aren't acting from a place of love even though they think that they are but in reality we don't feel loved at all and that's not what love is i love is gentle and it's kind and it's warm love isn't hard love isn't telling you to toughen up and to suck it up and to not cry um love isn't being dismissive towards you and your experiences and your emotions and your tears and your sadness and your grief that's not love maybe that's the way that some black mothers specifically only know how to um care for their daughters and teach their daughters but i think for me reading that was it was kind of it was eye-opening without a doubt but also terrifying to realize that my black mom didn't always act from places of love she may have had good intentions and she would never do anything to intentionally physically or harm physically and or emotionally harm my siblings and I am thinking about like my black sisters and I um but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen um so for instance growing up one thing that my mom always said to my siblings and I and I didn't realize the ways that it would negatively impact me going forward is that only the strong will survive and that is not something that any kid should be told we shouldn't be taught to be strong at a very young age like that and again looking back i know that my mom was merely trying to prepare us for our uh, hopefully our adult life um and to teach us that things would not be easy by any means but we'd have to keep pushing forward regardless if we wanted to make something of ourselves and if we wanted a stable healthy happy life but at the same time i internalized it in a way where going into oberlin everything was just tunnel vision for me um i worked excessively my first year i don't work that way at all anymore i don't even have the capacity to work that way at all like I don't know how first year Tosh did it, but she did it barely. Well, no, not barely. She did it, but it just wasn't sustainable. But I just went in thinking that I have to be strong. I have to be hard. I, yes, I can cry about things, get upset about things, but at the end of the day, I have to get through this because if I don't get through this, if I give up, if I change my plans, if I fail a class, then I must not be strong. If I'm not strong, then I'm not going to survive this battle. So it's very terrifying for me, I would say. Um, to it was it was hard rather to unlearn some of the things that my mom told my siblings and I growing up and to realize that a lot of what she was saying was a direct result of her socialization process as a kid and just the socialization process of black girls in white America and when we grow up and if we choose to parent black girls we pass these things on to are black girls they're they aren't great things by any means at all and so reading this book by um dr hooks has really made me just sit with a lot of my experiences as a black girl and 
I wasn't always loved properly as a kid and it was very hard for me to come to peace with that fact and to realize that I am in a process of learning to love myself in a very gentle and kind manner um, and do so in a very unapologetic way and just realize that I do not have the physical and mental capacity for most things these days because I am in a place of caring for myself very very deeply and it's also made me realize the ways that I want to be loved and cared for by people going forward and that includes both platonic and romantic relationships and for me it's like I don't even want to associate myself with anyone who cannot love me and care for me in a way that I need to be loved and cared for in order to feel good because otherwise it's like why are you even in my life if you're not going to love and care for me in a very gentle and kind manner um and I mean it's a very beautiful thing to just realize what you need from those around you because being in community with people is very important but at the same time I don't want to be in community with people who can't fully support me so with that being said I do want to um I want to read a paragraph from um Dr. Hooks's book where she talks about the parent-child relationship relative to enslavement. The parent-child relationship in a culture of domination like this one is based on the assumption that the adult has the right to rule the child. It is a model of parenting that mirrors the master-slave relationship. Black parents' obsession with exercising control over children, making certain that they are obedient is an expression of this distorted view of family relations. The parent's desire to care for the child is placed in competition with the perceived need to exercise control. This is graphically illustrated in Audre Lorde's autobiographical work, Zami. Descriptions of her childhood here offer glimpses of that type of strict parenting many black parents felt was needed to prepare black children for life in a hostile white society. Not understanding the way racism works as a child, the young Audrey decides to run for sixth grade class president. She tells the news to her mother, only to be greeted with these furious words. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of leave y'all with that paragraph from Dr. Hooks. And then, yeah, I'm still reading the book, like I said, and similar to Ain't I a Woman, this book covers so much. So it's very, very hard to summarize it because each sort of paragraph and part of the book focuses on a different part of um I guess with this book specifically black woman recovery but I'd highly highly recommend it um definitely a really great book and I'm going to be happy to share more with y'all once I finish it another fave of mine is the fountainhead by Ayn Rand yeah Ayn oh my god I'm overthinking her name Ayn Rand Ayn Rand now I'm butchering her name like I knew it but then I forgot it but that's okay (laughs) um it's A-Y-N and then last name R-A-N-D so uh she wrote a book called The Fountainhead and I read this book when I was a senior in high school a very long book and the words are super small so it took me like months to get through it but um it's definitely one of my faves so I think the reason as to why I like this book so much is because it Ran emphasizes um, the importance of authenticity in the work that we do and more specifically the paid work that we do and the sort of importance to but also the privilege to be able to how can I say this to be able to like genuinely do what you love to do and not focus on the money even if that means you live kind of shitty according to society's standards so the book is about um this man by the name of work and he's an architect and when he was in architecture school the architecture school he would oftentimes kind of defy the rules he wouldn't complete the assignments quote-unquote correctly because he didn't believe in the ways that 
his instructors wanted him to complete the assignments and to design his um his um architecture and so he was i think he was practically like expelled from school or something like that um and the book is just really powerful to me because throughout the entire book you know work stayed very true to himself even though he wasn't making a ton of money and he was living in a pretty crappy apartment and he watched as other architecture architects that those words really messed me up architect and architecture and the difference between the two so architect refers to the person <laughs> um he would watch as him and other he would watch as other architects around him who weren't even as great as him by the way um how they assimilated to modern day sort of ways of creating architecture and as a result they were making it very far they were becoming famous they're making a shit ton of money but work didn't decide to do that and he was so unbothered throughout the entire book and that's the part that always got me i don't think rand ever had this man say any negative thing about his circumstances granted it's been a while since i've read the book and it's like a 500 page book very small words very small font once again um but i just recall him being so indifferent towards it all and it was very admirable but at the same time, not the most realistic thing in the world. For the vast majority of us, I don't know if we'd be able to do that. I don't know if I'd be able to do that, especially as a person who grew up low income and not having a lot of things financially. Um, and so therefore, as one can imagine, it's going to be really important for me to achieve financial stability, you know. Um, but it was also just terrifying to think that, damn, will I one day have to do something to do? Will I one day have to conform to a standard of work that I don't want to do, but I have to do or I feel compelled to do because of societal pressures, because of the money? Um, it just made me think a whole bunch and I really, really loved it. And I want to read a quote that Rand included. He was a very young man. He had just graduated from college in the spring of the year 1935, and he wanted to decide whether life was worth living. He did not know that this was the question in his mind. He did not think of dying. He thought only that he wished to find joy and reason and meaning in life, and that none had been offered to him anywhere. And I think that um, this quote definitely embodies a lot of what folks experience in their 20s, specifically when you're trying to find who you are outside of work outside of family obligations just trying to find who you are as a person what makes you get out of bed in the morning what keeps you going throughout the day what drives you what are you passionate about but also thinking about who you are in the context of work um and so that quote just really stuck with 17 year old tosh because I don't know, I guess I knew like while reading the book that one day that could very well be my life. And I think to a certain extent, it really, it is my life right now. Thinking about um, who I want to become, who I am becoming, who I am today. And um, this idea of just living and living wholly and freely, um, but sort of trying to figure out what that means. But at the same time, not trying to figure it out and just going with the flow taking it day by day and like falling into new things and falling into my passions and the things that drive me and keep me going so yeah that's definitely a favorite quote of mine and i'm going to share one more quote from her so a message from the author back in 1968 she said it does not matter that only a few in each generation will grasp and achieve the full reality of man's proper stature and that the rest will betray it it is those few that move the world and give life its meaning, and it is those few that I have always sought to address. The rest are no concern of mine. It is not me or the fountainhead that they would betray. It is their own souls. So yeah, it was a it was definitely a really good book overall. And I think another thing that I really admired about Work as a character was how he stood very firm in his values and he didn't allow anyone or anything uh deter him 
slash distract him from those values and I guess to a certain extent I see myself in that character and that's really important for me when I read a book I think is that I see myself in my experience in my life in the books that I'm reading which is why I get really really attached to books and why it's very hard for me to kind of get those books off of my mind so I do have to kind of um identify a healthy boundary between like reading and not reading and the attachments I make with the characters in their lives because I tend to just see myself in a lot of the characters and a lot of their experiences and which is why in turn leads me to loving the book so much but I am a person with um, clear values and clear beliefs and I like to stand firm in those values and beliefs and when I feel as though I am doing something that isn't in alignment with those things it, it feels awful um, and so I think overall I thought the book was very inspirational and I was in awe throughout the entire book of work and his indifference and his attitude and his stance and his belief system and I could only hope to really get to that place in my life I suppose I'm going to talk about two more books and as I'm recording this podcast I'm realizing that I have a shit ton of uh, favorite books if we're being honest and that list is only growing so I think um, if y'all are interested and I'm probably gonna do it uh, maybe I'll record these podcasts more often where I talk about the books that I've read in more detail and about the lessons I've learned and I think I'll do maybe a more thorough reflection prior to recording or maybe I won't we'll see because I Sometimes it's nice for it to be very authentic and for me to just kind of say what's on my mind and what comes to mind when I read quotes and think about those books. But it's also nice to have some type of structure and to have um, some guiding, not questions, but to have um, something to guide me as I am speaking. But I'm going to talk about Black and Buddhist as well as Do Nothing. Okay, so... Black and Buddhist was edited by Pamela Ayoyutende and Cheryl A. Giles, and the for- foreword was written by Gal and Ferguson. <clears throat> okay, so Black and Buddhist, um, what Buddhism can teach us about race, resilience, transformation, and freedom. Um, so this book consists of a collection of essays written by various Black Buddhists across the nation. And Buddhism is something that like crossed my mind back when I I think the summer after I graduated from college and I think I was listening to a podcast about Buddhism and I think I just googled like black Buddhists because I'm like wait a second I want to hear more about what Buddhism kind of looks like from the black perspective in a sense um and I came across this book and I immediately ordered it and I read it obviously it was such a great book I do want to acknowledge that my um idea of and perception of understanding of buddhism is um very westernized without a doubt um so i think it's just important to acknowledge that and i also want to say that i don't consider myself a buddhist but i do think that i embody some of the buddha buddhist practices um to a certain extent and I think that is why I was so attracted to the book and why it is one of my favorites and why I really enjoy reading it um so some of the practices that I engage in as y'all know is um mindfulness practice uh meditation um and I guess journaling about those mindfulness practices and meditation and being in tune with myself um and the life around me um I do want to read something from the book to more clearly kind of define Buddhism. And again, I don't want to take it out of its context by any means, as you can see very clearly, that's important to me, but give me one second. And so according to the actual Buddha and Buddha itself means the awakened one and his name, I'm going to butcher it, apologies in advance. Siddhartha Gautama, I believe. So he was the Buddha, the awakened one. Um, so here is some of the um, the sort of conclusions that the Buddha came to. So one, suffering is real and shared throughout humanity. Number two, there are discernible causes for this suffering. Number three, these causes can be transformed and terminated. And the number four, 
the way to transform and terminate the causes is through the path so one thing that i really appreciated about this book is the acknowledgement of just how fucking hard life is (laughs) um and how i guess like suffering is at the sort of root of humankind and and while i do believe and know that a lot of that suffering um doesn't have to exist and is a direct result of various systems um and a lot of those systems um being cultivated over decades and centuries unfortunately but i really appreciate the acknowledgement of the suffering and just sitting with that in a sense and making sense of the suffering understanding the roots of like one's individual sufferings communal sufferings etc um and then thinking about that from a black perspective so I think I just like to finish like my um, sort of conversation about this book off with some quotes that I really enjoyed from the book and I posted them on my Finsta. So I'm going to pull that up and share those quotes with y'all. I will start by admitting that the only thing I have ever wanted is to be free. Um, I think after reading this quote is when I realized that freedom was one of my core values. So I really appreciate this book sort of revealing that to me the function the very serious function of racism is distraction it keeps you from doing your work it keeps you explaining over and over and over again your reason for being somebody says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do somebody says your head isn't shaped properly so you have scientists working on the fact that it is somebody says you have no art so you dredge that up Somebody says you have no kingdom, so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. Mourning has become an important practice for me. I am learning to intentionally mourn. This may sound strange. However, I am noticing that so much of my freedom and joy is bound up in my capacity to mourn things. Even if it means I have to stop everything that I am doing and support this experience through meditation, breathwork, movement, and even tears. What can I allow myself to endure before I choose freedom, whatever freedom is? We were hopeful about our new direction, which was no direction at all. Per, I like the sound of that, just going with the flow, we're trying. I have felt such hopelessness and discouragement triggered by our discussion. Somehow, it all seemed so pointless. Like we were all part of a group of lost children unable to figure out how to get home after dark. Is that who we are as humans? And then lastly, when you experience doubt, you practice until you overcome your doubt and then you help others overcome their doubt. So yeah, again, I would highly recommend Black and Buddhist without a doubt. It was a great read. I want to reread it and kind of go back and reread some of the quotes that I highlighted and just do some more reflecting on it. I loved it without a doubt. Um, and then the last book I want to discuss before I love y'all and leave y'all is this book called Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving by Celeste Headley. So I read this book um, back in September and it was very fitting for me because I first discovered it on TikTok. And I just knew after the person who recorded the TikTok explained it that I had to get my hands on this book. And so I ordered it and I finished it in a few days. I could not put the book down. It was a very great book. Um, So I really appreciated this book because it confirmed a lot of what I had already been feeling starting the first semester of my second year, how... I knew right then and there that I did not want to spend the rest of my life being physically and mentally drained and tired, that I wanted more space to not have to contribute all the time, to not have to create some sort of product all the time, to not be so productive all the time. Um, Throughout this book, Hetley talked about the 40-hour work week and how that came to be. she talked about work culture and um, she talked a lot about um, the importance of leisure. And I think that's one thing that stood out to me was the leisure component of her book and how in a world that is um, in a society that is um, 
overly obsessed with productivity and efficiency we are actually one of we are actually not efficient at all <laughs> um and in today's society we oftentimes equate like being busy all the time and working endlessly and contributing endless numbers of hours to whatever project as being successful as um being a hard worker um as something that we all should um desire to do and to be and as a result like those people who do those things are really important people um which isn't the case at all and so one thing that stood out to me was how in reality when we think about people who have contributed like a lot to society and thinking more about like physical products those people spent a lot of time doing nothing they spent time walking and thinking and resting maybe reading whatever the case may be but all in all, our greatest sort of um, discoveries about ourselves, um, about the world around us, whether it's a physical um, creation uh, or just realizations and uh, being more aware of whatever happens when we are doing nothing, when we have the space, the physical and mental capacity to just be with ourselves, to be with our community, to be with whomever we'd like to be with. Um, to rest, to think, to engage in hobbies. That is actually when, if we are thinking about productivity and thinking about um, what we produce by the end of the work that we do, that is how it actually happens. But also realizing how a lot of what she discussed in this book just will never be most of our realities. Um, for me, I am striving towards a life where that is my reality. Um, because I will be retiring early and I will reach financial independence early tentatively. Um, but realizing how for so many of us, again, if not for most of us, we will never be able to access that as individuals. Um, but instead, there has to be like structural change um, within like our governments and our societies. This work has to be done over this work has to be done from a ma more macro level perspective. Um, and it was just very eye opening to me. And she also discussed how as a result of working endlessly, um, it's very hard to be in community with people because you're so focused and ingrained on your work as an individual, whether you're in school full time, working a full time job, it leads to people who are not as empathetic to others because we're so engrossed in the work that we're doing. And I feel that, especially as someone who um, does feel guilty sometimes over like how many hours I put into school and work, but also realizing that I don't have much of a choice. Um, granted, there are always ways that I could improve and make more time for the things that actually matter in life, such as um, being in community with those that you want to be in community with and engaging in your hobbies just for the sake of engaging your hobby and not trying to produce anything per se. Um but also realizing that at the end of the day, you know, I got to go to college and I got to get a job um, and I gotta do all these things to hopefully achieve a life of doing nothing. But hands down, such a great book. And I'm going to share some quotes from the book. Decades of research demonstrates that we are more creative, more insightful and generally sharper when we allow ourselves a significant amount of leisure time. Although we think of great men and women as hard workers, many of them were as rigorous about scheduling leisure as they were about getting things done. A lot of things weren't accomplished despite their leisure. They were accomplished because of it. Being a loyal customer became a mark of a good worker at most companies, and eventually politicians picked up this rallying cry, encouraging citizens to shop in order to demonstrate lo love for their nation. Oh, that's another thing that this book talked a lot about, which I had already had an awareness of and am always reflecting about, is um, consumerism and thinking about materialistic items and the things that we're taught to value, especially when it comes to like physical, tangible things, and how I'm don't get me wrong there's nothing wrong with wanting luxurious items there's nothing wrong with wanting to purchase a very expensive um uh what is it called see i don't know what it's fucking called um 
like a very expensive name brand item there's a there's a term for like high-end brands I'm just blanking on it but it, that's okay whatever y'all know what I mean um and like it's okay with wanting a Tesla and the biggest house and a lot of a lot of fancy clothes like whatever like it's okay to want those things but at the same time for the most part we have been socialized to desire those things and to equate having those things with making it in life with success and it really isn't everything and it's actually such a tactical and intentional thing that our society has done for uh, to us to keep us being consumerists and workers because in order to consume so many ridiculously expensive things like it's fucking crazy how much some things are like i could be the richest person on this planet i would not spend a thousand dollars on a bag that's just me like no judgment to those who do once again like i do believe that some people value material items that's okay and it makes them happy but i think for the vast majority of us we've been socialized to value those things but it will not ever 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 bring us the true happiness that we are desiring by those things because i read a quote one time where it says the more you desire something the more you realize that you don't have it slash you're just going to want more of it so if you desire a shit ton of money and so you're constantly working towards making that amount of money let's say you have a target number in mind and you hit six figures okay you're just gonna want seven figures and then eight figures it's never going to be enough it's almost as if we're constantly on this hamster wheel of chasing something and it makes me sick to my stomach and I've fallen guilty to those things without a doubt like I know money is definitely a touchy subject for me and I hate worrying about money and I um, am very like financially aware and financially responsible um, but I know that I have to better my relationship with money because I need to I want to um, operate from a more abundant perspective because I have a feeling that even when I hopefully one day make a good amount of money and I'm working towards financial independence and I retire early, I'm still going to be concerned about money. I'm still going to have my budgets and I'm still going to overthink things. You know what I mean? And it just goes to show that like the more you desire something and you want for something, you realize more and more that you just in your mind don't have enough of it and it really is the way that we're socialized and so this book once again like pointed that out and emphasized that even more for me and I just really enjoyed reading about it another quote but her message to me was clear I am indispensable I am busy because I am important and I hate that can we stop praising being busy it's so annoying doesn't mean I'm more important or like better than anybody because I'm always busy don't want to be this busy <laughs> I did not choose this um and there are some who's and there are some who even say laziness is the underlying motivation beneath a great deal of innovation just as true idleness is really time in which one is not actively pursuing a profitable goal if the if the vast majority of us have to work some hours in order to survive then the better question becomes, must we work as long and as hard as we do? That is always my question too, Headley. Like, I don't get why our most basic needs are not provided for us by the government. It just, it is ridiculous. It is very immoral. It's insane that we have to work an endless number of hours to provide for ourselves with our most basic needs, let alone trying to enjoy the other things in life, such as traveling and going out to eat and doing activities, like whatever the hell y'all want to do with your free time. Like, it's just crazy how expensive everything is and it's I don't know it just makes me not want any of it because it's like if I have to work quote-unquote that hard to get those things I'm okay <laughs> I'm gonna rethink my values and what I want out of life and go from there because that is crazy talk um I think the benefits conveyed by a meaningful career may stem from the value and emphasis placed on work by our culture not by nature this is true this is all done very intentionally through the socialization process in truth, work ethics in the Western world have often been tied to faith, especially in the United States. So that was very, very interesting for me to read about um, because, okay, she goes on to say, people put in long hours not for rewards, punishments, or obligations, but because many feel existentially lost without the driving structure of work in their life, even if that structure is neither proportionally profitable nor healthy in a physical or psychological sense. The question for me was not whether people enjoyed their work, but whether they needed it. I know Bestie, I'm wondering the same thing. 
humans don't need to work in order to be happy sure don't if anything i think working endlessly in the ways that we do is what is the driving force for our unhappiness and our dissatisfaction with life please note that by work i don't mean the activities we engage in to secure our survival finding food water or shelter i mean the labor we do in order to secure everything else beyond survival or to contribute productively to the broader society the things we do in exchange for pay and lastly in the book revisiting Revisiting Keynes, Lorenzo Pecci and Gustavo Piga, I butchered those names, apologies, argue that our excitement over buying a new thing is intense but short-lived. Mm-hmm. The average consumer, they said, grows accustomed to what they have purchased and rapidly aspire to own the next product in line. So while Keynes predicted that we'd all be working very little by now, the rise in unnecessary consumption was part of what made him wrong. Yep, and that goes back to what I was saying once again. It's like, once you get something that you've been wanting for a while, you're basically going to want more of it because we're on a hamster wheel. Life is a hamster wheel and we are all running on it. I wonder if I'll ever get off of it. <laughs> but with that, those are some of my faves ever. I hope y'all enjoyed the podcast. I'm going to share my closing quote and I'm going to share something that I posted on my Insta story, actually. And this is a quote about timing. It says, life can be fulfilling at both 16 and also 60, 25 and 35. Joy is timeless. Learning how to make the most of where you are does not have an age cutoff or a deadline. You will always be able to sit and wonder about things that could have gone differently, but you can also trust you have not missed out on what was meant for you. I know it's hard to trust when so much is unknown, so instead of trying to make sense of it all at once, take it all color by color, tree by tree, scent by scent, relationship by relationship. You don't have to take it all in at once. Let me repeat that for myself. Let me repeat that for myself. You don't have to take it all in at once. Taking the newness of it all one moment at a time without worrying about the moments to come. Let that be enough. Breathe deep and let this moment be enough. Let this be a place where you find peace. Remember the ground beneath your feet. You belong here. No one has taken your place. You are not too far from grace. Your story might be unfolding differently than expected, but that doesn't mean it won't be beautiful. Where you are meant to be, you will always be in time, no matter your age or stage in life. So with that, I'm going to love you guys and leave you guys. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast, and I will see y'all in the next one. Bye.